You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. Do what you feel, girl. You should see me naked. You wouldn't say that anymore. Do what you feel, girl. That experience of writing and locking myself in a hotel room and just writing was fantastic. Do what you feel, girl. You should choke and die and you should become lame and unable to walk. Do what you feel, girl. Being accused of being anti-feminist by feminists when you're a feminist is a very strange thing to wake up to. Do what you feel, girl. Do what you feel, girl. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is such a special contributor to the pop culture canon. I feel like I've been enjoying her work for my entire life. Maya Bialik is a multi-talented actor, producer, director, educator, neuroscientist, and author who got her start in classic 80s TV series, including Beauty and the Beast and Facts of Life, before landing her breakout role at age 12 as a young Bette Midler in the 1988 film Beaches. Two years later, she nabbed the lead role in the super popular teen sitcom Blossom, which ran from 1990 through 1995. And once that series ended, she went to UCLA for 12 years, where she earned a PhD in neuroscience, and completed her doctorate in 2007. Mayim returned to TV in a big way in 2010 when she joined the cast of The Big Bang Theory, where she was a fan favorite and was nominated for four Emmys before the series ended in 2019. And now, together with her Big Bang Theory co-star Jim Parsons, she's executive producing the new Fox show Call Me Cat, which she also stars in as a single woman in her late 30s, who runs a cat cafe. She'll <laughs> soon be making her debut as a feature film writer and director with a movie called As Sick As They Made Us, starring Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen, and her new podcast, Mayim Bialik's Breakdown, in which she talks to celebs about mental health challenges, is debuting this month. Ooh. We have so much to talk about. I'm freaking out. Welcome, Mayim Bialik. Yay! Hey. Thank you. That was the most accurate and lovely introduction I think I've ever gotten. Oh boy, accurate and lovely. It is my pleasure to do so. We're so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm a huge fan of Bust and, and I'm really excited to be here. I know you've been in the magazine before. You're you're an old school Bust friend and we're so I'm happy. I'm an to old school second wave feminist. That's right. <laughs> this is what I like to hear. And I said that I've been following your career my whole life. You know, I was when I was researching, I realized that you and I are the same exact age. So like I, you're, I was going to say, I would have guessed you're like 20 years old. I was like, I could be your mom. Jeez. <laughs> found a youth over here. Well, I think that we've both found it because I think we both look as young and as fresh as we did back in the day. You should see me naked. You wouldn't say that anymore. <laughs> As I mentioned in my intro, you were a child star, which is a milieu I find endlessly fascinating. You got your start at 11. You were part of the entertainment industry machine for a very long time. By all appearances, you are a whole and complete human being with a soul <laughs> and, and not one of the many casualties of young Hollywood. I want to know wow. how you escaped that fate that befell so many around you. Um, 
I mean, first of all, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, I consider myself a shell of a human, but I, I appreciate <laughs> that I'm, I'm coming off like a full person with a soul. Um, you know, in all seriousness, and, and I do tend to be a serious person, many, many people, you know, fall prey to drug abuse and alcohol abuse and honestly mental health challenges that often lead, you know, for us to try and fill that. Um, it happens outside of Hollywood as well as, as in Hollywood, but absolutely the, the notion of people telling you you're great and kind of having access to, to power and money and all that stuff can, can make it very, very complicated. Um, I, I hate to say like, oh, here's why I didn't, you know, turn out like that. Because to me, that also is kind of a disservice to, you know, many who have taken their lives and lost their lives, you know, because of, um, of drugs and alcohol. And so, uh, I will say that for me and my family, um, I'm a second generation American and my parents were pretty strict and old school and, uh, that served me well. You know, I was not a party girl. I, I, I don't think anybody wanted to party with me. I was kind of mopey. And honestly, I think that protected me a lot. Cause I didn't really have like a social life to be going out to parties or anything like that. And I'm very grateful. The blossom set was very clean. Like we didn't, there, nobody took drugs and like, there was no alcohol. Like I didn't see anything like that. So it was a very kind of a healthy place to grow That's up. That's nice to um, hear Yeah, mm-hmm. that there was like yeah. safe space at workspace. And now you're a mom to two boys who are around the same age that you were when you first started working. <laughs> What would you say to them if they wanted to start auditioning? Has the issue already come up? Like what, what is it like now that the roles are reversed? Ooh, now that the roles are reversed, um, I see why my parents kept telling me they didn't want me to be an actress. Um, (laughs) No, I, I think that the, you know, the changes in, in your life and your schedule when you become an actor, when you're still in school, um, are enormous. And, uh, I, I don't want that for my kids. They, they both really like Shakespeare because they're <laughs> nerds. Um, <laughs> I mean, in the best way, they're Shakespeare geeks. And, um, they definitely, my older son in particular is very charming, very extroverted. Um, he would probably love it, but he also has so many other interests and, um, he and his brother are homeschooled by their dad. And so their life is really not about changing it to the point of auditioning and things like that. And the fact is, um, I know my kids and I know their personalities and, um, that kind of world where you're told, like, you don't get a sick day. I don't care if you're in a bad mood, like put up or shut up. I don't want that for my kids. And I don't think my parents wanted it for me, but it's sort of like happened so quickly that there we were. When I think about your career, I definitely think about this this showbiz idea of leave them wanting more because you were so, so, so famous during Blossom. And and then, like, you were gone. You left. You went to school. You became a very, very uh, well-regarded scientist. And then you came back for the Big Bang Theory. And I'm just wondering, like, what made you decide to leave acting for academia? And then what made you decide to leave academia and come back? Well, you know, a lot of people don't remember that in 1994, 95, when Blossom ended, 
being a sitcom actor was not considered a respectable aspect of our industry. Meaning, you know, now we see TV shows with like movie stars doing cameos and all that. That was not happening in the 90s. And Uh even though we were a primetime show, you know, we were on After the Fresh Prince and we were a a primetime evening show, a lot of people kind of thought of us as like, oh, it's like Punky Brewster. It's like a kid's show. So it was definitely seen as a not so bad idea to actually leave the, the industry as it were, and take some time. But I don't think anyone expected me to be away for 12 years. (laughs) And, um, I really wanted to go to college. I wanted to be judged by what was, you know, inside my head and what I wanted to do in terms of helping other people and being part of a, a larger diverse community. Um, you know, I was raised going to public school and I went to a public university and I met people of all different shapes and sizes and colors and socioeconomic backgrounds. And I wanted to be part of the world, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's what, you know, going to UCLA really did for me. And what I found is that I really liked academia. I liked the structure of it. Um, I minored in Hebrew and Jewish studies, so I got to, um, learn Hebrew properly. I also took Yiddish for a year, which is my, my native tongue as it were, um, so is I it really, really? Is it your native yeah, tongue? I was raised with Yiddish. My grandparents were were Yiddish speakers, and my mom spoke Yiddish in her home. So I guess when I was a baby, it seemed like the most logical thing is for her to speak Yiddish to me. So my grandparents were also Yiddish speakers. They spoke all, like ninety percent Yiddish and like a, just a scotch of English. And my dad's first language is Yiddish. And Aww. like I wish that I could fully speak it, but I can literally only curse people and curse at people. I can be like, der Stichsolstewerin, I can wish horrible things on people. Those things mean you should choke and die and you should become lame and unable to walk. But it sounds like words in Yiddish. What? I can rude. yell at people in Yiddish like as if it, it were interchangeable with English, but I can't, you know, oh my like... God conduct business well and so like also so you get it like college is like that's the place to do that it's the time in your life to do that to learn the things you want to learn to study the things you want to study so I love that world I met the person that I eventually you know dated for five years got married to and we went we both went to grad school at UCLA we had our first kid in grad school so like I was living a very different life and I liked it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the reason I came back is that after I got my degree, um, I had, let's see, uh, a two-year-old and a, a newborn, um, mm. and I ran out of health insurance because when you're a grad student, you get like an extra little bit of insurance after you leave, and I literally was not thinking I would be in another sitcom. I thought if I can just get enough work just to get like a couple jobs to get my health insurance back, I would at least be able to do that. You know, my, my ex-husband, my now ex-husband, but at the time we were married, you know, he was a grad student. So like, we were both just trying to figure it out. Um, I was not some (laughs) rich kid. Like I didn't have money from Blossom. Like people didn't make money like they do now back then. Like healthcare is fucking expensive. I had a toddler and a newborn. I was like living on a stipend, you know, like this was not like the lap of luxury. I was like a lot of people like, where do I like, where can I cut my budget? What can I do? And um, we needed insurance. So that's the story of how I ended up <laughs> on the Big Bang Theory. That is amazing. Okay. So I have a lot of comments about your new show, Call Me Cat. My first comment is that I saw it and I liked it very much. And here is why. I don't know. I don't know if 
Cat on Call Me Cat, which, as I said in the intro, is your brand new show on Fox, just came out. Um, it's on Thursdays. Is that right? Yeah. Our regular time is Thursdays at nine on Fox. Thursdays. Okay. So I don't know if Kat is supposed to be Jewish. She reads Jewish to me. I like that. (laughs) I relate to not getting a plus one at weddings when everyone else gets one. This even happened to me at my own brother's wedding. I was one of the only people there without a plus one and I found it quite rude. I find it. And I was glad, I was glad to see that addressed on the on the primary episode, the premiere episode of the show, I was like, oh, this girl feels my pain. I relate to only wearing comfortable fashion and everyone else can fuck all the way off. Mm-hmm. I relate to being obsessed with cats and wanting to be around them all the time. <laughs> I relate to being obsessed with Leslie Jordan and wanting to be around <laughs> him all the time. He's exactly um, as adorable as you imagine. Oh, my God. I relate to being a fundamentally friendly person who also grapples with social anxiety. And I relate to having a lady boner for Cheyenne Jackson. (laughs) In my fantasy life, all these ways that I related to your character, they imply to me that I would also relate to my embiolic as a person. How much of that is true? How much are you like your character in the show? Should we be friends? We, I think we already are friends. Um, yeah, our 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 creator and showrunner Darlene Hunt is a very very unusual, quirky, um, creative artist, and um, she took all the kind of like quirkiest parts of her and the quirkiest parts of me, and she put them together. Um, a lot of the this is the closest I've ever come to both playing myself and also completely feeling like I'm playing a character. Like, Mm. it's not like I feel like I'm there being myself, but there are things about this character that I get to do, which come from me. And I love that. Like, I love the excitement that she has over small things. I love that she dresses up fruit with tiny little hats and googly eyes. (laughs) Like she's, she's a playful adult. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we, we sometimes see in men, but it's it's not as typical that we see women like this because it's like, not sexy. Correct. Like she's goofy, she's sloppy, she's klutzy. Um, you know, and also she loves to be in her body, which is something really hard for me, and it's something mm. that I've had to really embrace because, and you know, I don't know how much you want to like go here, there, or anywhere, but you know, most actresses my size would be asked to lose at least 20 pounds, you know, just to be, just to inhabit, you know, this kind of space. Um, and so it's very, it's really beautiful and it's empowering and it's also terrifying, um, because it's very awkward to also know that there's nothing wrong with my body or my size, but the truth is that in Hollywood, I am, you know, two to three to four dress sizes bigger than the average woman that, you interact with. So to present a character that is not trying to hide her body, um, Mm -hmm. and who's wearing things that are comfortable. And like, sometimes I look and I'm like, I, in my head that looked better than I think it does. Um, (laughs) and not, and not obsessing about that. And like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that sweater shows. Yeah. Well, like that sweater shows the flesh on my back in ways that we don't usually see unless it's an ad about how not to have your back fat like flop over your bra we're creating a character who doesn't wear a ton of makeup and doesn't do a ton to her hair like 
it's a woman like a lot of women. She's just like a real person. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I'm glad that you brought up the fashion aspect. In the first episode, Kat mentions her dislike for makeover shows. And I was just curious if this has anything to do with your appearance on TLC's What Not to Wear no, in 2009. This is totally no. lifted from the original Miranda. We are based oh. on a BBC show, Miranda, and many, many things from the original Miranda you will find in our show. Darlene puts an American spin on them and it's a little bit different, but no, that is something from the original Miranda. Um, my character likes to gallop. That's something from the original <laughs> Miranda. There's just like a lot of, a lot of random, funny, quirky stuff. And much of it, like talking to the camera, that's from the original Miranda. It's like a lot of critics were like, do they not understand? People don't talk to the camera anymore. It's like, yeah, we get it. It's based on the original show. That's a thing. We're aware. <laughs> What, what Darlene has done in creating this show is she's like taken all the things she knows that I can do and she kind of incorporates them. And, you know, the idea is that this is a character who really inhabits a lot of her physical space. She likes kicking. She's klutzy. Like she's in every aspect of her physical space. We wanted to really also have a show that that felt super entertaining in kind of an old-fashioned way. Um, you know, I grew up with comedians like Tracy Ullman, who I wanted to be, you know, and she, like, did it all. And so I think Darlene wants to kind of have that. Like, Mayim sings. This character likes to sing. Like, Mayim can dance. Let's have her dance. Like, I play piano. Let's have her do – like, just, like, fun, you know. And, and again, that's entertainment value. I mean – I think I look ridiculous, but until some director tells me to stop, I just keep doing it and people seem to like it. So. <laughs> I would love to take this opportunity to find out more about your career as a scientist. You have a PhD in neuroscience. You've written a number of books about child development that draw on this area of expertise. You've participated in many outreach programs aimed at getting women and girls more interested in science. How did you arrive at this specific field of study and how have you applied it creatively since you got back into acting and entertaining? Um, well, I fell in love with science during my blossom years. I had a science tutor, a woman. It was the first time I had, um, honestly, a, a really awesome female mentor in my life. And I think it made a difference for me. It made a difference to learn one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you know, we now know that every child learns differently, but in the seventies and eighties and even into the nineties, it was kind of like, if you didn't learn it fast, you must, it must not be for you, you know, like mm -hmm. or you're a little dumb in that area. And that's how I felt. I always felt like I was dumb in math and science, but once I had someone working with me and helping me organize the information and learn it in a way that made sense to me, lo and behold, I, I could do it. Um, it didn't come as naturally to me as it did to a lot of students. And yeah, it's usually boys that were expected to excel there. Yep. Um, but when Blossom ended, I I went to UCLA and um, I chose to study the, the brain and nervous system. That's neuroscience. And um, ended up working with individuals with special needs. And I studied obsessive compulsive disorder. And that was the topic of my thesis. And now that I sort of entered the acting world again, I mean, I was teaching. I taught for about five years after getting my doctorate. Um, I designed a neuroscience curriculum for junior high and high school students here in the homeschool community in Los Angeles. Uh, but yeah, once I started being full-time on Big Bang Theory, uh, I had to stop teaching as I was. And yes, a lot of what I do is turn to advocacy work and using my platform and doing partnerships with companies like Texas Instruments and IBM and, and places that are um, having initiatives in particular to get young women, um, young people, but young women in particular to be more equally represented in the STEM fields. 
Your character on Big Bang Theory is so much more nuanced than like any other woman character that I've seen trying to portray someone who's not perhaps neurotypical. Like I had to assume that it was like the most heavily researched character in sitcom history. <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, I was asked to play a female version version of Sheldon Cooper. I'm Amy Farrah Fowler. You're Sheldon Cooper. Hello, Amy Farrah Fowler. <laughs> In any case, I'm here because my mother and I have agreed that I will date at least once a year. Interesting. Now, before this goes any further, you should know that all forms of physical contact up to and including coitus are off the table. And I had not seen The Big Bang Theory. I had heard about it once because I thought someone said that I was mentioned on it and I thought it was a game show. Um, I, I Googled Sheldon Cooper. I had no idea who Jim Parsons was. Like I was not, I had a kid. I was just finishing a PhD. Like I wasn't watching sitcoms. It's, you know, I didn't have time. And I looked at a video of Jim Parsons doing Sheldon Cooper. And I was like, oh, I know people like this. Like I can do that. So I literally just like imitated that. I did the female version of that. My audition for Big Bang Theory, um, I actually did it without making eye contact as one option mm. and then making eye contact. And, you know, as many with uh, many on the autistic spectrum in particular do have trouble with eye contact. So that was a choice that was made. Um, and, and I'm glad that she made eye contact because obviously it would have been a lot of years to not make eye contact. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I tried to show a character also that was comfortable in her awkward skin um, again, that was a character that I was allowed to be my size and I, I didn't have to wear Spanx or anything like that. And I know that sounds stupid to keep mentioning Spanx, but you'd be surprised, you know, for women in Hollywood, deal. it's completely yeah. e expected that even in casual clothing, um, both on camera and off that you wear, um, binding binders, um, you know, of that sort. And old sex in the city the other day. And Samantha was wearing, um, a girdle with a hole in it. Oh my God. Yeah. Like some, yeah that's some exactly crazy. what Spanx is. So yeah, I actually made the decision. Wait, gosh, Spanx it must have be pee holes. I didn't know they, had they pee do holes. have pee holes. It's, um, it's kind of like a, like an old school onesie. It's two pieces of fabric. And then when it's supposed to be that when you just like sit, that the fabric pulls apart, you just end up urinating on yourself. I'm not going to yeah, like, you end up with a moist crotch of urine. Oh, because I just thought they were like tight tights, like super tight tights. No, no, no. It's like it comes below your bust and then usually they're like sh shorts. And then, but the funny thing is they now make, uh, wait for it, maternity Spanx so that, so that when you're pregnant, you can also have smooth lines, which look for women who want smooth lines, by all means do it. But the notion that I need to, that I, as a, the, the kind of baby woman and feminist, I like when I'm pregnant, nothing wants to be held in except that baby. And when the cervix is ready to release it, then we let it all out. No other part of me needs yeah, to be. You don't need to let the baby out of Spanx hole. That's <laughs> no. <laughs> and now they make like tank tops that are Spanx so that your back and shoulders and everything. Your back I, I, I just can't. Spanx. Spanx undies, Spanx tights. How about no Spanx? I actually stopped wearing Spanx. It was like a decision. It was a decision that I would only wear. I mean, a personal decision that I would only wear clothing that I looked good in, in my normal form. Meaning if the fabric was so clingy and satiny and delicate that I 
couldn't just be myself and my body, then it's not the dress for me. And it was so liberating to just be like, what's a dress that I can wear that I I do have cellulite. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to find a dress that makes me feel comfortable. You know, another way that you're really melding your, your, background in science and enter- and with entertainment is your new podcast. It's called My Embiolics Breakdown. Um, tell me all about it. It's all things mental health. I've decided to, um, you know, share a lot of aspects of my mental health struggles, which many of us have, um, and combine that with my neuroscience background to speak to experts in the field and also people who are experts in themselves um, and their own struggles. And yes, some of these are celebrities and celebrity friends. and Including Leslie Jordan. Leslie Jordan I is one of our first and Cheyenne Jackson. Let me tell you, those two men, Both. it's amazing the things that they chose to share, amazing the things they chose to share. And um, a lot of these stories that, that people are sharing do involve sometimes trauma, um, alcoholism and getting sober and the challenges of why people use and why people drink. But fundamentally, it's trying to explain to people the basics of mental health and also the connection between the mind and the body, that it does matter what we what we eat, how we eat, how we sleep, how we think. All those things have a scientific basis, as do things like acupuncture and massage and essential oils, like things that a lot of people dismiss as hippy dippy. There's science to it. And I'm happy to break that down for people so they don't have to. I can't wait to listen to it. Thank you. You can actually subscribe already if you'd like. Oh, Um, awesome. And we have our website, bialicbreakdown.com, because we're also building a website to have articles about each Mm -hmm. of the guests and um, also some research about each of the topics we talk about. So we cover you know, anxiety versus panic attacks. And we cover OCD and we cover dissociative identity disorder and really everything that's out there. We cover it. It's perfect. It's a match made in heaven. Uh-huh. Uh, tell me more about oh, this. Also, feature. Wait, oh, wait, sorry. I do yeah. want to give a shout out because we also have Abby Epstein and Ricky Lake who come on to talk about oh, women's mental health oh in particular. God. And they talk about, um, you know, obviously sweetening the pill and they talk about business of being born, um, but also really putting a, an emphasis on, on female mental health and the, the, the specificity of the female system and, and also the pressures on women, which are different than the pressures on men, which mm-hmm. do and can contribute to different treatment, different diagnosis. Um, so that's something we're also for sure diving into and a lot about um, sexual identity and the Mm. science behind homosexuality and gender identity. There's absolutely science to that and and what that's like uh, from a science perspective. So really excited to share those topics, Um, you know, trying to increase our diversity as well in terms of what we think about when we think about mental health. Um, Abby Epstein and Ricky Lake were both on this very podcast um, and they were legendary and we respect their work so much. I love them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the feature film that you wrote and directed. I'm so excited that this is the next direction that your career is taking. Uh, COVID has definitely changed a lot of the planning that I had been doing. Um, But I, after my father died, my father died five years ago, uh, part of the grieving process was to write. And I wrote um, a script not necessarily, it's not autobiographical, it's not a memoir, um, but it is based on a lot of experiences I had growing up with mental illness in my home and how it affects siblings. And this little script that could attracted the attention of Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen. 
And Amazing. Yeah, and Simon Helberg, who played uh, Howard on uh, The Big Bang Theory, is set to be in it too. Olivia Thirlby is set to be in it. And um, the plan is for me to direct it because it's very hard to um, imagine not directing something that is so personal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we really have to wait and see you know, how the next couple months are in terms of this global pandemic and how it is impacting travel and sets. It's very difficult to work during a pandemic. So um, it's something we have to figure out. But, um, you know, I had never written anything like that. So also to have that experience of writing and locking myself in a hotel room and just writing was fantastic. I can't wait for it to get made. Same. So I would like to ask you about the op-ed that you wrote for the New York Times. It came out in October 2017. It was called Maya Bialik Being a Feminist in Harvey Weinstein's World. I'm just going to read a brief excerpt from that op-ed in which you wrote, I make choices every day as a 41-year-old actress that I think of as self-protecting and wise. I have decided that my sexual self is best reserved for private situations with those I am most intimate with. I dress modestly. I don't act flirtatiously with men as a policy. I am entirely aware that these types of choices might feel oppressive to many young feminists. Women should be able to wear whatever they want. They should be able to flirt however they want with whomever they want. Why are we the ones who have to police our behavior? In a perfect world, women should be free to act however they want, but our world isn't perfect. Nothing, absolutely nothing, excuses men for assaulting or abusing women, but we can't be naive about the culture that we live in. Well, on one hand, you said it, you wrote it, New York Times. On the (laughs) one hand, you are describing simple common sense strategies for self-protection in a very predatory industry that you've been in since you were 11 years old. However, I know many feminists were upset by these sentiments and felt that you were victim blaming or something in that neighborhood. Well, I was going to say, even though I explicitly said there's absolutely no excuse. Yes, absolutely. Correct. correct. You participated in a New York Times live stream to address these concerns, which I thought was great. It was a disaster, um, though. But you feel like it's sort of like equates to how when you take a self-defense class, they say, don't wear your hair in a ponytail. Well, I mean. But you also would never blame a girl from getting pulled backwards by her ponytail. Right. Just because uh, well, told okay, her I'll, I'll, I'll let Emily finish before I uh, decide. No, I was how just to... going to say, for those who didn't catch your live stream, can you take a moment to clarify your position and address these concerns that women had about your article? Right. I know that you are like feminism is a really important issue to you, and you didn't write this article flippantly. No, and you have bravely come forward on more than one occasion to address the concerns that other feminists had about it. So I would love to give you the platform now to really clarify. That's, I mean, I appreciate that, and it's. Um, I would say this was one of the most painful experiences that I've had in my life. Mm. Um, And that's not to say like, oh, poor me. I'm saying that the um, being in a situation and having put myself in a situation where any woman would feel that I was intentionally implying that any woman deserves 
to be assaulted, raped was, I mean, it's, it's staggering. And I think what was also very complicated is that this article came out about two days before Me Too started. I did not know that Me Too was about to land. And this was really the beginning of kind of the Harvey Weinstein conversation. Um, I was asked to write this op-ed. It was outlined by an editor with me. Mm. And it also undergoes an editorial process. And I'm not saying that I'm not responsible for that. But what I am saying is that I was asked to speak specifically to my experience in Hollywood Mm -hmm. as the person that I am. And um, I do believe that as a second wave feminist, we do tend to have what would be considered more conservative opinions about these things um, in terms of what we do protectively. And I also, you know, have learned a lot from third and fourth wave feminists about the difference in perception, the different lens that we can place ourselves in. And I also think that while it is not in my, it's not my job to say what's a proper feminist and what's not. And by the same token, I don't think it's other people's, um, in other people's realm to say that I'm not a feminist, right. For what I, for what I believe or how I hold. Um, it's, it's a very complicated thing for which, um, you know, there are repercussions and, and have been. And I think what was also deeply, deeply upsetting is that a lot of the anger was from people who had never read the article because Mm. the very specific excerpt that you read explicitly states something which many people didn't even read. Um, But many, many people who know me said to me, I knew what you meant, but it wasn't the best way to deliver that information. Um, And for that, um, I, I have tremendous regret because as a person who has always sought to uplift women, to protect the right of women to have permission to do what they want with their bodies in Mm -hmm. any stage of their life, to believe that choice feminism is also feminism, um, to be a real, you know, a real warrior in many senses in my personal life for the role of women and how we're upheld. Um, it's, it's incredibly, I was incredibly disappointed in myself that I might not have presented that in a way or that it didn't, I did not communicate fully. I, I definitely think it's important to, to acknowledge that, yeah, the misunderstanding was there for a reason. You know, Mm -hmm. it was absolutely there for a reason. And also there are many feminists who believe in, um, preserving parts of themselves in a protective method. I remember, hate to bring up the word sassy, but I remember sassy (laughs) magazine, um, before there was, you know, bus, there was sassy and, um, sassy magazine used to give tips on how to protect parts of your body so that you wouldn't receive cat calls on the streets Mm -hmm. of New York. And I remember as a young teenager, that didn't strike me as disempowering because it was different then, you know, it was like, 
flannels around your waist is a way to hide some of your curves so that you don't get unwanted attention. And it's yeah. disgusting. It's like the Billie Eilish that, approach. Cor- cor- correct. And, and that's actually, that's a great example. I love Billie Eilish, not because I she dresses her. the way she does, but because she dresses how she wants. And I, I also get to, um, you know, love women who dress a way that I never would or could. So, um, that's again, kind of the broad spectrum of mm-hmm. feminism. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for addressing it. I really I don't know if I did well. My publicist might be like, you fucked up all over. No, I don't think that your publicist would say that. Yeah, I I appreciate how much, you know, like time and introspection has gone into your your feelings on it. Being accused of being anti-feminist by feminists when you're a feminist is a very strange thing to wake up to. Um, Like the way that we express ourselves about... So many things have changed. Um, and one of those, those, I would say, reevaluations has um, been around the work of Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. And I know that you started in a Woody Allen TV movie in 1994. It was called mm-hmm. Don't, Drink, Don't the Drink the Water. What are your feelings about these sort of retroactive regrets? I feel like the most recent one was Kate Winslet, who just was in one of his most recent movies, retroactively regretting having worked with him. Um, what, what are your feelings on, on these sort of like feelings on disavowing people that have been important parts of your career in the past that are no longer okay? You know, I think this is a category that we've never encountered. I mean, it is, this is a, meaning this is a, an unparalleled situation that many actors are being asked to deal with. And, um, I don't think, I don't think it's comfortable to say, I have no regrets about being associated with that person. Um, I also don't think it's appropriate to say that, you know, his movies haven't impacted my life in significant ways. Um, but given the situation and the complexity and the delicacy, um, this is like, um, I don't even consider it pleading the fifth. It's like, holy shit what do we do? You know, what do we do with, I mean, centuries, (laughs) centuries of patriarchy, you know, it's, it's not simply about Woody Allen. You can't swing a dead cat in the town I live in without finding someone who you should probably disavow yourself from. And I hate (laughs) saying that because there are good men. There are, there are good men, but in our industry that is predicated on power and control, it is an extension of the patriarchy and we're all living in it. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's worked with Woody yeah. Allen is living in it. And that's quite a few people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot has gone down and, you know, I was on Big Bang at the time and we were all like, who's allowed to hug? Do we hug? No one hugs. We don't touch. No one makes a joke. Like it was very awkward. It was very awkward trying to figure it out. Um, but like I said, I don't think that men should expect hugs from women simply because we work with you. Yeah. And so when you think about that, not that I would know because I've never worked with a guy. No, <laughs> no but when you think about my comment in the op-ed about that, like mm-hmm. to me, that that's something that I chose. I am known as a woman who doesn't like hugs. And yeah, should I be allowed to hug whoever I want? Does it feel good to get hugs? Yes, but I don't want to open that up because I don't want to deal with your creepy hugs, which 
Maybe it's one in five dudes. I don't want your creepy hug, one in five dude. <laughs> you you are a self-proclaimed feminist through and through. I've always appreciated that so much about you. Um, I think it's so interesting. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you and I are the same age. I feel very firmly planted in third wave feminism. It's Mm -hmm. so interesting to me that you've mentioned multiple times that you are a second wave feminist. How did we, two feminists who are the same age, end up in different waves? How did we catch different waves? I mean, I mean, I, I don't know enough about, you know, your life and maybe you don't know enough about mine, but I definitely think that like the way that my mom was, and my mom was, you know, she was a feminist before they called it that they just called her a bitch. Cause she actually spoke <laughs> her mind and, you know, she was called a bitch when it wasn't cool. And it wasn't like just something you said to your girlfriends. Um, my mom was known as an outspoken, you know, wore whatever she wanted to wore a sleeveless dress to an Orthodox wedding. Like my mom <gasps> was a, a crazy, yeah, it was a Shanda. She was a crazy Bohemian and she spoke her mind. And she, she also was very, and is very, very feminine, uh, very adorned, you know, like makeup, gorgeous, was always complimented for her looks, you know, nails done, very stylish. And I basically came out more like the version of my dad. You know, I came out a little bit like Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, and I think that part of my you know, certain aspects of my feminism, I think were a rejection of my mother's feminism, Mm -hmm. meaning I was like, oh, I go more extreme, right? Like, oh, you can have it all. Watch me not have it all. Like, watch (laughs) me not be an adorned (laughs) feminist. Um, So I think that's part of it. Um, And yeah, I guess I just, you know, over time and in the community that I, you know, was raised in, um, that notion of feminism and, um, you know, also the notion it's not to say that we don't agree about misogyny or the patriarchy. It's simply more an expression of, um, you know, what, what each individual woman sees as an authentic representation of her feminism. And for me, that does tend to be more in line with second wave feminists. I'm also like, I'm like a 65 year old, you know, I was a 65 year old, 15 year old. Like, I'm just like, (laughs) they called me an old soul, but like, I'm also not surprised that my feminism is also, you know, a little bit removed from what's hip. Cause a lot about me is kind of removed from that. Yeah. My feminism has so much to do with like the culture shifting power of pop culture. Right. That like, I feel that I that's a very, than I am. that's what it is, Emily. That's not cooler what I'm suggesting. <laughs> the pop culture that I'm appreciating is a pop culture that you're actually making. So I don't mm-hmm. know who's cooler in that regard, <laughs> but, um, I, but I also think our feminisms are always changing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mine yeah. definitely is. Yeah. I mean, I'm a mom. That was a huge hit, you know, in many ways to feminism. My mom didn't want to have kids when she got married. And that was scandalous in 1964 for Mm. an 18 year old girl to be like, oh, I'm not getting married because I want to have kids. I actually don't want that. Mm. Um, And they waited seven years, which back then was a scandalous amount of time, especially coming from an Orthodox family, which my mother came from. Um, That's right. And, and yeah, being a mom, being an at-home mom, you know, a lot of people were like, how can you be a feminist and be at home? You're denying yourself. And there's a lot of complexity to that. And also I'm certain that my feminism didn't change because I changed diapers and played with blocks. Like I'm a hundred percent certain. And I raised 
to feminists and their Mm -hmm. boys and their feminists. Has your feminism impacted your career or vice versa? Of course. I mean, my feminism is me. Like it's who I am. It's the decisions I make. It's, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of people say like, well, maybe if you looked like Emily Ratajkowski, you would be a fourth wave feminist. And I guess that's possibly true. Uh, but in the TV world, you know, I seem to get the opportunity to play women who who at, at this point in, in their lives are comfortable in their skin. And to me, like um, I, I happen to not be a choice feminist per se, but I love the idea that this is you know, a character who's a feminist, she's owning herself and she's owning her life and she's owning her body. Um, and that's, that's really a gift to me, you know, to get to play that. That was very inspiring. I have one last question for you. And this is the last question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is what you watching. It is a very broad pop cultural question. It involves books, movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts, anything that you are consuming culturally, we want to know about it because it's probably very cool. Maya Bialik, what you watching? You do not want to know. I do. It's so, it's so depressing. It's the Khalif Browder story. Oh my God. He was imprisoned at Rikers for allegedly stealing a backpack and he served most of his time in solitary confinement as a teenager. Um, it is a tragic story and that's what I'm watching. And what, what is it? What is it on? Where are you watching? It is on Netflix. Okay. And he, yeah, he committed suicide even after getting out. Um, and it is, it's devastating. I'm sorry. I'm like that feminist right now. I liked my octopus teacher. That was fun. Oh yeah. I I started watching it. I have to finish it. Oh, that, okay. I love that one. Um, I will say I'm a Last Kingdom fan. People don't know this about me. I'm a super geek for like druids and Vikings and things. (laughs) And that's a Netflix series. It's the only show that I watch serially. Um, And then in terms of music, I listen to the same stuff that I've listened to for a long time. Like super into freaking Carolina on my mind. That's right. James Taylor. For some reason during quarantine, it's like I'm obsessed with that freaking song and I can't get enough of it. I I play, I just play it on repeat going to Carolina in my mind. I'm going to everywhere in my mind. I am so tired of being in this tiny apartment. Maybe that's it. So yeah, not a very exciting pop culture experience with me, but that's my story. I appreciate you answering the question. I appreciate you answering all of our questions. You have basically been an ideal bust. Yes, this was thank you. I had an amazing time. Thank you. You and I are going to take the briefest of breaks. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you, and hopefully you will ask me, what you watching? Before we get back to the show... I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Braddock. Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. Ten. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. We're back. Hello. Callie, we just talked to Blossom. I know. Insanity. <laughs> I know. And now, I know. She was so cool. And now it is the time in our program when I ask you, and hopefully you ask me, what you watching? Ooh. What is going in your eye holes, Callie? Well, I binged watched this show on Netflix called The History of Swear Words. History of Square. Oh, was that the one with Nicolas Cage? Yeah. It is so good. Every episode is so good. Um, but while I was watching it, there were two people that um, I really wanted to look up. One was this jazz singer named Lucille Bogan. Oh, I love her. I gave her an album to my mom, and my mom was like, this is very inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard of her before. I mean, when I was reading about her, it sort of seemed familiar, but now I want to know, like, everything about her. She was a a, a jazz singer back in, in the 1923, and then in, in the 1930s, she got really filthy and all about sex and, and uh, drinking and stuff. And <laughs> they sampled this song called Shave Em Dry. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm going to read some of the lyrics to this to you. I got nipples on my titties, big as the end of my thumb. I got something between my legs. It'll make a dead man come. Uh, oh, daddy, baby, won't you shave him dry? Um, <laughs> so sorry. It's so funny. I'm, I'm going to turn back my mattress and let you oil my springs. I want you to grind me, daddy, till the bell do ring. And then this one part when she's singing it, she starts laughing while she's singing. Mm-hmm. Now your nuts hang down like a damn bell sapper and your dick stands up like a steeple. Your grandma, your goddamn asshole stands open like a church door and the crabs walk in like people. See, now that you're reading it, I understand why it was so inappropriate for me to give this album to my mom. I just thought that because she was considered like a feminist icon of the 1920s and 30s that you it would not listen to it before you gave No, it. I I did, but I guess I didn't I wasn't paying close <laughs> enough attention. And then, and then 
lose this one part at the end of the song. A big sow gets fat from eating corn, and a big pig gets fat from sucking. Reasons you ain't see this whore fat like I am. Good God, I got fat from fucking. <laughs> Lucille Bogan, what a treasure. Oh, my God. And then there was this other song, Till the Cows Come Home. I got into a big hole on her. I was just going all over the place. And then this song, this one lyric is, they know I'm a bitch from Baltimore. I got hairs on my cock that will sweep the floor. <laughs> Amazing. And then there was the Barrison sisters. They were this uh, vaudeville act in 1893 to 1897. In the United Them they, I, am, I am not familiar with, so I'm all ears. They have a song. Uh, this was in the Pussy episode. And they were, um, they were like advertised as the wickedest girls in the world. Also, <laughs> fun fact, they were from Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Ooh. Yeah, I found an article on um, the history of Greenpoint. Um, on WordPress um, about them and their dad fixed broken umbrellas, which I find it to be a funny job. (laughs) You can't find a good umbrella repair man these days. Not at all. Um, And so they had this song. um, Do you want to see my pussy? And they would be lifting, you know, slowly like teasing their skirts up and singing the song about, do you want to see my pussy? And at the end they would flip their skirts up and they had, Kittens strapped over their crotches. Live kittens strapped to their vahanyas? Yes. Wow. It sounds like animal abuse, but also so funny. But <laughs> I mean, it like is animal, animal abuse. abuse. You definitely would not be able to do it now. But in the 1800s, that must have been, I mean, that's just insanity. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. And then in the Pussy episode, it also reminded me of how much I like Fried Green Tomatoes, the movie. I need to rewatch that, the Tallulah part, you know, and where they all look at mm-hmm. each other's vaginas. Oh, Tawanda? Yeah, Tawanda. And then um, and then I was thinking when they were all looking at each other's vaginas, how, many, how much casual genitalia I have seen in my life? Just like, you know, a vagina here, a dick here. And some people have never seen another person's vulva. It's true. It's but true. not, you know, you, you are, to be fair, you are a pornographer and not everybody is. Yeah, but I mean, I, w- I was talking about this and then my friend Tammy was like, you know, I hadn't seen my own vagina until I met you in college and you had our bodies ourselves. So I was still showing people their own vaginas well before pornography. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was this uh, the fuck episode and they were talking about who has said fuck the most in, in um, movies. And you would probably think it's Samuel Jackson, right? One would think. One would be wrong. <gasps> Who is it? Jonah Hill. He has had fuck more times than anybody. Huh. Because of Wolf of Wall Street. Interesting. And then I rewatched Wolf of Wall Street. And that movie is really good. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about is this movie, Save Yourselves on Hulu. And it is like these t- tipster couple, Brooklyn younger kid, well, young 20s and they go upstate new york to a friend's cabin to unwind unplug from everything no internet no laptops or anything and just so happens that that same week uh aliens giant poofball aliens invade the earth and (laughs) it has got sunita manny she was in um uh what was that show but the thing that she that I love her the most from is she's in the music video Turn Down for What? With DJ Snake and Little John in 2014. <laughs> Remember that? Where the guy like gets 
music like takes control of his body and starts dry humping everything and breaking <laughs> stuff on his dick. And then she gets the vibe and then she like cocks her vagina like a gun and smashes on his face and breaks <laughs> through the floor. And then everybody's just going crazy with the dance vibe. <laughs> if you have not seen that music video. Clearly I need to return to it because I do not remember that. <laughs> it's so good. And then it's also got John Reynolds in it. Not the music video, but um, the movie, the the uh, Save Yourselves movie. He's the guy that I think is so cute. He was in Search Party and Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And then Ben Sinclair from High Maintenance is also in it. I love some Ben Sinclair. Yeah, so it was a really good movie. I liked it a lot. And then I liked that it reminded me of the DJ Snake movie video. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I've been watching, a lot of crotchal things. Mm-hmm, clearly. <laughs> what have you been watching? On Peacock Premium, they just – um, put every episode of The Office on there. And I actually had never seen The Office. What? I had watched the British version and I really liked it. So then when they made it in uh. a, a, did an American remake, I was like, I don't need that. I've seen the best. Why should I see the rest? And I just <laughs> completely ignored it. But then, you know, Meredith, who we work with at Bust, and Meredith's in the art department, she really, really loved the American office. And I was like, well, maybe I'll give it a try. And I know that it was, it was created by Greg Daniels who created parks and recreation. And I really loved parks and recreation. So I started watching it. I realized it has a similar voice, which I find very comforting to me. I don't think it's as funny as parks and rec, but I'm not that far in. So maybe it gets funnier, but I did find it very, very soothing, Mm -hmm. especially after the Capitol riots completely frayed my nerves to fuck. And I like couldn't sleep. And I was just like freaked out about civil war. Um, You know, a little office went a long way and made me laugh. It also made me realize that even before I worked for bust, like I really have never worked in like a primarily male office office environment in my life like even when I had a job similar to Parks and Rec I worked in a in Fairfax County Community and Recreation Services but in Virginia and even then like my because I was sort of in the equivalent of the secretarial pool I was in the the area where everybody got signed up for their Parks and Rec classes and it was all women so like I I've never been in a primarily male office environment ever in my life. So I'm sort of watching it like a Margaret Mead anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what is this new weird society that I've never experienced? The only time I've worked with um, mostly men was when I worked at this pyramid scheme to sell spa packages in malls Mm. around New York and Jersey. And like you got there really early and they would all chant, here comes the boom. <laughs> it was so obnoxious. It was so many doodly dudes. I got fired for leaving the Christmas party early. Uh, and the other thing that I've been watching is I've been catching up on season three of Star Trek Discovery, which just finished its third season on CBS All Access. And I have to say, this is the best season of that show so far. Season three, they really knocked it out of the park. I was liking it, but like season three, I was like, oh, I'm loving it. It's it's been very exciting. Without, I'm not going to give too much away if you haven't seen Star Trek Discovery yet. But in the context of like all of the other Star Trek series and movies, in that timeline, the first two seasons of Star Trek Discovery 
started chronologically before everything else. Like they're around the same time as Captain Kirk, but like maybe a little bit before. But then all of this crazy shit happens in season three and the whole ship and its entire crew are transported into the future, farther into the future than any Star Trek show has been before. <laughs> so they go from chronologically the earliest one to chronologically so, the, the latest one and all the technology changes. Is Star Trek the boldly go where, yeah, where no one has gone, gone before? And now they're going further, further even older. further. They're bolder, they're further. <laughs> and it's very cool and I'm here for it. It's exciting. What's future? What's your future like? It's a it's uh dystopian. Oh well. I could have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> and uh of course the last thing I've been watching is the Majestic Pop Tarts Patreon page. Yes. It's in the world, and the reason that it exists is Callie, you and I are trying to keep our beloved Bust magazine alive. Mm-hmm. We're doing everything we can to keep um this feminist institution alive and thriving and trying to make sure that it makes it through to the other side of this crazy pandemic world. Um, And we really need everyone within the sound of my voice. We need everyone to help us to keep bust alive, uh, keeping bust alive, keeps this podcast alive. It literally keeps Callie and I alive because we (laughs) eat thanks to bust magazine. So we're doing everything that we can to try to raise money right now. And um, our part of that effort is the pop tarts patreon page you can find it at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast and over there callie and i have um assembled all kinds of goodies that you can get if you sponsor this show we've been typing up show notes exclusive for patreon donors that include links to what everybody has been watching for all 100 episodes yay episode 100 We've got totally ad-free episodes. There's exclusive content on there that you can't get anywhere else. We're giving away um, Zoom chats with Callie and I for donors. We're giving away um, prize packages full of bus swag. All kinds of different um, enticements for you to become our sponsor are available over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Do check it out. We hope that you will support us. And, of course, thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. But you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't even try. Right? Right. You can, however, email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Episode 100, Callie. Yay! <laughs> I can't believe it. I Sunrise, know. sunset, right? <laughs> it does not seem like it's been 100. It's crazy. That's a lot of episodes, Callie. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being a friend. <laughs>